This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, warm welcome to First Move this Friday. Great to be with you. It's, however, the weekend just yet, and we do have a Friday flurry of important data to bring you. Breaking in the past hour, the latest U.S. jobs report. 187,000 jobs were added net to the American economy in August. We can call that, I think, a solid number. And it was a touch better, actually, than expected. Then it gets a little bit more complicated. Job gains for the months of June and July were revised lower by a total of 110,000 jobs. And if you take a look at the numbers, the unemployment rate also ticked higher to 3.8% too. Now, however, the number of people actually participating in the jobs market also rose. So you can argue, I think that's a good sign if you want to see a bit more slack in the labor force, as we know the Federal Reserve do. Wage gains on the month were also slightly softer than expected. Also good news for the Fed, less good news, of course, for workers. The real question for investors is whether this change is anything for the Federal Reserve at their meeting this month where no change is expected. And I think the answer in a word is no. Investors are, though, in the meantime, pricing out the prospect of a move higher in November too. Here's a look at the market picture. We're going to discuss all this in just a moment. But as you can see, U.S. stocks on track to begin the new month with solid gains. No September slog in Europe either, although you can see the Zetrodax there slipping into unchanged territory. Major averages mostly higher, as you can see there. And a September stimulus cheer in China too. The country's central bank announcing new efforts to support the Chinese yuan by cutting the amount of foreign currencies banks need to hold as reserves. The yuan falling some 5% against the US dollar this year. That, despite the dollar weakening against other currencies, it's making it one of the worst performing Asian currencies. And Beijing out with further steps to improve housing affordability amid the ongoing property slump. The government enticing first and second time home buyers with preferential mortgages, regardless of their previous credit history. The Shanghai Composite advancing almost half a percent, with Chinese stocks chalking up their best week, in fact, since July, as Beijing amps up that economic support. In the meantime, Hong Kong markets closed for trade today as a super typhoon approached the area. Widespread flight cancellations leaving many stranded at Hong Kong Airport too. The full effects of two big storms starting to be felt in the region. We've got a full report and analysis coming up of that too. But first, let's give you a reminder again of today's job numbers. The August jobs report, just the latest piece of data this week, suggesting that perhaps the federal interest rate hikes are now being felt. Neela Richardson joins us. She's chief economist at payroll and HR solutions firm ADP. Neela, it wouldn't be a jobs Friday if we didn't have you on the show. I'd call this moderating but healthy. What do you make of these numbers? Yeah, I would agree with you. Uh, It's good to be here. Yeah, I think this is a pivot towards more sustainable growth going forward. There's a caveat there, and I'll I'll get 
to that in a minute. We saw over the last year a lot of churn in the labor market, people quitting their jobs and lining up new ones. We're seeing that churn start to slow. And then when you add really low layoffs uh, from other data that came out this week, layoffs in the United States took a step backwards. So they actually dropped uh, this week versus last week. You're seeing a picture of sustainable growth. It's lower, uh, but it's likely to be uh, at this level for a while now. Uh, and that's good news for the American worker. Give us the caveat. <laughs> the caveat was the revisions of this report, though yeah. troubling. Uh, <laughs> 110,000 revised down. That is in a normal market, uh, in a normal pre-pandemic market, seeing 100,000 for a month is not a surprise. It's a moderate growth rate, uh, nothing to be concerned about. But the, the stark deceleration, the stark revision is troubling, and it provides a bit of a mixed picture to an otherwise good report. What do you make of the unemployment rise too? Because I made that contrast between what we're seeing, which is greater participation for the first time in a, in a number of months now in the labor force, which, as I mentioned, if you're the Federal Reserve, then this is a good thing. You want as many people participating in the labor market as possible, um, but offset that with a, a rising unemployment rate, which arguably they've said in the past looks too low, actually, for what they're trying to achieve in terms of the inflation level. So we've gone in this latest report from rock bottom historical levels of unemployment rate to slightly higher. Mm. So in the big picture, uh, it's still a very low unemployment rate. Again, the issue is how quickly it's accelerated over over a course of a month. And so this is not a number that we can sleep on. We have to be very watchful of it to see if this is just the start of another bump up in, in unemployment rate in, in to close the year. I hope not. I hope that this influx of workers, and there's a lot of reasons why workers are coming back to the market, um, this influx of workers helps again with the sustainable growth picture that we're seeing emerge. The other thing that was relevant, I think, to this is the um, Hollywood strikes. It's not in mm -hmm. isolation or directly impacting um, that many people. But if you look at the sort of knock on impact to those that are associated with this industry, it's what, 900,000 jobs. We also had um, a, a trucking company go bankrupt and you saw that in transportation. So I just wonder whether there was a bit of drag from both of those things in this, which, you know, you have to hope, fingers crossed, will will filter out next month and beyond. <laughs> There's a lot of reasons for, for us to want that Hollywood strike to come to a peaceful resolution, <laughs> not to mention just entertainment value yeah, movies. <laughs> uh, of, of what that industry produces. But, but that is right, right? So striking workers did play a role in this report. Information, the sector in which those workers fall under is a very small fraction of the overall labor market. That This is a labor market that has been solid, but I've, I've been arguing all along heavily fragmented. And you're seeing areas of both strength, like in services, education, healthcare, leisure, and hospitality, and weakness. Manufacturing has struggled all mm -hmm. year long. And now information, not just in terms of Hollywood screenwriters and actors, but also fields that were looked at as future-proof, like you know, data science and technology. We saw big headline layoffs at the beginning of this year. So uh, there's not one sector uh, in this economy. There's a lot of them. There are microcosms. And that, like I said, some of them are strong and some of them are weak. The big picture, though, is a solid month again. Yeah, I want to ask you indirectly, 
what this means for the Federal Reserve. And again, I hinted that some of the investors out there were suggesting that maybe this is further support for the idea that the Federal Reserve is done now with their, their rate hikes. But what Jay Powell said at um, Jackson Hole was the importance of the consumer and the strength of the consumer. And yet again, this week, we had good data from the consumer. And that continues to be um, a key point of strength and has been for, for the US economy. Just weave that in as a sort of a outlier of sorts in terms of ongoing strength and acceleration in this economy versus the slowing that we're seeing elsewhere. Yeah, I'd argue that the Federal Reserve's job is harder now, not easier. When inflation was high and all the data pointed in the same direction, what they had to do was easy. Uh, Now we're getting such a mixed picture. We're still seeing some resilience in the consumer, still seeing strength, but not as much strength in the labor market. And we're close, but not at that 2% goal. We're closer. Um, But by some measures, we're double uh, the levels that the Fed would like to see. So what do they do? Do they hold on and, and take a pause and see how the economy flows or do they act definitively? I think that's a hard choice for the Fed. Uh, I think they'll get a lot of uh, commentary either way. But that question is the one immediate. The second, I think, is a little easier, which is how long to keep these rates at higher levels. Mm-hmm. And I think that is clear. The rates are going to stay at higher levels, regardless of what the terminal rate is, for a significant amount of time, because you're seeing these pockets of reinflation still emerging in the economy. Yes. Can't promise you whether rates will go up again, but what we can promise you is they're not coming down anytime soon. I think that's the <laughs> that's message. Right. Yeah. Neela, <laughs> One direction is an easy choice. That's yes, right. exactly. Yeah. No choices, no options, no problems. Um, Neela Richardson, <laughs> thank you. Chief Economist there, ADP. Have a great weekend. Neela, thank you. Okay, tens of millions of people in Hong Kong and southern China are bracing for fierce winds and heavy rain as Typhoon Solar approaches. We've just heard a T10 warning was being declared. That's the highest warning level Hong Kong has, with officials advising people to stay away from exposed windows and doors. They say it may be the strongest typhoon to hit China's Pearl River Delta in more than 70 years. Ivan Watson joins us now from Hong Kong. Ivan, I hope you're preparing to hunker down too. What can we expect? Well, uh, we haven't We feel the wind picking up here. The T10 warning, which is the highest that Hong Kong issues for a super typhoon, that's that's been issued in the last hour or so. And uh, the super typhoon is passing, we're told, within some 40 kilometers of this city. So I can feel the wind picking up right now. Um, This city takes these storms very, very seriously, Julia. Uh, It's canceled flights, schools were canceled today. The residents are being urged to stay indoors, to take shelter, to stay away from the windows as well. And there are warnings that there could be storm surges. There will be storm surges because uh, we're approaching high tide in the next probably two hours. Uh, So this is a very serious storm coming through. Uh, The CNN's weather uh, team said that this is only the fourth time in 23 years uh, that Hong Kong has uh, issued a T10 warning. That's the equivalent of a category four hurricane. So as you can see, this is not a joke. Now, this super typhoon is slamming into one of the most densely populated parts of the world, into the Pearl River Delta. So the neighboring city of Shenzhen, it too is seeing 
uh, this kind of these kind of conditions. Flights have been canceled there. The airport shut down mid uh, midway through Friday. Schools closed there. So the entire coastline is hunkering down for this. The Hong Kong Observatory is warning that with the high tides, that in some parts of Hong Kong you could expect a storm surge of three or more meters more than the usual levels you would see at high tide. So just to give you another sense, this is Causeway Bay, the, the really the beating heart of the city. On a normal Friday night, this would be hopping with people out uh, and about. And instead, it's just the odd person that you see kind of coming through here uh, in, in what is a very, very serious storm. Back to you, Julia. Ivan, thank you for briefing it for us to explain what's going on and uh, take care there, please. Go and find some cover. Ivan Watson there. Thank you. Now, for the fourth day in a row, Russia is reporting Ukrainian drone attacks on its soil. Officials say air defences intercepted one drone headed towards Moscow, while another hit a town in the Kursk region. Meanwhile, Ukraine claims that a drone strike on an airbase inside Russia on Tuesday was launched from inside the country. The Kremlin has declined to comment. The attacks come as Ukrainian prosecutors say they're investigating thousands of cases of alleged Russian crimes against children, including murder, torture and sexual violence. Melissa Bell joins us now. Melissa, what more can you tell us about this? We should start there. Uh, this is something that Ukrainians have been pursuing almost since the start of the war, the war crimes allegedly committed by Russian troops on their soil. And their strategy has been very clear that the more aggressively they can prosecute these crimes, even as the war goes on, uh, the better their chances of convincing Russian soldiers on the other side that they will be held to account. So the latest figures uh, are quite extraordinary, 3,200 uh, war crimes cases uh, now opened uh, here in Ukraine involving children. There are many more than that, of course. And when you look at the list, Julia, of the sorts of crimes that are alleged to have been committed, you're looking at uh, children held in basements in towns that were taken and tortured, as were the adults. You're talking about some of the children who were deported to Russia. It is a vast array of crimes and uh, absolutely shocking when you look in detail uh, at the allegations of some of what went on over the course of the last year and a half in this country. Uh, to the mention you made a moment ago of the latest on Russian soil, those drones that have been uh, foiled by Russian authorities, they say, both heading towards Kursk uh, region and towards Moscow. It has become, Julia, almost a daily occurrence now. This war very much being taken to Russian soil. In fact, a, an advisor to President Zelensky said, said as much uh, the day after the largest uh, drone strikes on Russia since the war began on the night from Tuesday to Wednesday. And I think what we found out today from Ukrainian authorities about that is fascinating. So far, Ukrainian authorities have been very reluctant to comment on specific uh, drone attacks, neither confirming nor denying. This time, they've gone a step further, saying, look, not only were those drones carried out on our behalf, but they were actually launched from inside Russia. And I think that takes things a step further in terms of Ukraine's uh, determination uh, to make plain its strategy of taking this war to Russian soil, even as it uh, tries to make those advances uh, on the counteroffensive, just south of here in Zaporizhia. And I'd just like to show you, Julia, some of the pictures, the images that we've uh, managed to get exclusively from uh, Ukraine's uh, SBU, the secret services here in Ukraine, uh, that were shot only yesterday with uh, drones that show just the other side of that line that is moving ever so slowly, ever so incrementally southwards at huge cost to both sides. 
but it gives you an idea of what the Ukrainian forces are looking at as they try and strike out to the south and to the east uh, of Robotyny. Uh, those uh, dragon's teeth, about 70 kilometers on that stretch you can see on those pictures, the trenches behind them, those extraordinary layers of fortification, even once they have managed to pass uh, the many layers of minefields and trenches and passageways that have been created over the course of the last year. We spent uh, much of the night uh, with drone operators from the Secret Services who explained that these fortifications, Julia, have been being built almost since that line stabilized in March of 2022. And these are the extraordinarily deep Russian fortifications and defences uh, that Ukrainian forces are currently taking on relatively successfully, they say, with further gains again this morning just south of here in Zaporizhia. Julia. Wow, extraordinary images there. Melissa, thank you so much for that report. And as uh, Melissa was saying, we're beginning to see what appears to be at least a clear strategy by Ukraine to bring the war to Russian territory. Ordinary commercial drones are proving indispensable in this effort, often flown by some rather unlikely pilots. Christian Armpour has the details. Any support is welcome in Ukraine, especially if it appears blessed by Jesus, say these drone students, set up in an abandoned church, working on their simulators, and convinced their cause is just. We do whatever we can now to resist, because Russians want to kill all called us. This is genocide. Next door in the construct and repair class, Yulia solders and tweaks and teaches. This part is fairly simple and fun, she says. And did you study engineering? What are you in normal life? Mm, the writer and the film director. You're a writer and a film director. Yes. And now you're a drone operator. Yes. We're not allowed to disclose the location where Yulia and the others put theory into practice. Here in this innocuous looking field with a rudimentary obstacle course, this could almost be child's play but with deadly results of course. These are all civilian drones that the Ukrainians are repurposing for their current war effort. They can be bought off store shelves. But this signifies a turning point in the conduct of modern warfare. A $500 drone that's been weaponized can take out vehicles and weapon systems worth millions. Software engineer Lyuba Shipovich started the Victory Drones Initiative. The most advantage is it's uh, one of the most cost-effective uh, weapon. Uh, and it's also, it's also a weapon and it could be used as reconnaissance. Uh, for reconnaissance purposes, uh, if you see the enemy, you can hit enemy, you can hide uh, uh, like your soldiers. Uh, so it's pretty but enemy can see you. Uh, yeah, if you uh, don't use uh, security measurements. Like hiding or disguising their signals, because the Russians are adapting fast. She says they're mostly crowdfunded and have deals with the Ukrainian military to train frontline troops, tens of thousands so far, in what's become indispensable strategy. That was just practice, dropping a water bottle full of sand. But just a few days ago, the group says one of their former trainees took out this Russian tank on the Eastern Front. They can also wipe out artillery positions and troop carriers. How long did it take you to learn to fly? Many of these citizen soldiers are women, busting stubborn myths. And Yulia, of course, agrees. In fact, she assembles the drones her husband flies too. And a I mean, lot of women all, have taken are, up this yeah, fight. Yeah, we are all people and we are fighting for our existence. 
Christiana Manpur, CNN, Ukraine. Coming up on First Move, more scrutiny for Spanish soccer officials today after that unwanted World Cup kiss we'll discuss. And later, imagine creating a college course on any topic you want in the time it takes to make breakfast, in fact less. We'll be joined by the CEO of Cypher Learning to explain how. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to First Move. More voices joining the chorus of condemnation of Luis Rubiales, the Spanish football chief who planted a kiss on footballer Jennifer Hermoso. On Friday, Luis de la Fuente, who coaches the Spanish men's national team, apologized for applauding Rubiales in public last week. It happened as Rubiales made a bullish speech, refusing to resign for his behavior at the Women's World Cup final. De La Fuente now says his applause for Rubiales was, quote, unacceptable and called for greater equality in football. The apology comes after UEFA's president condemned the kiss, too, describing it as inappropriate. Atika Schubert joins us now on this. Atika, it's tough to see a way back for Rubiales after layer upon layer now of, of criticism, even if he does continue to remain silent. Absolutely. And I mean, what we're seeing is that the fallout is also hitting other members of the Federation, such as Luis de la Fuente. He was featured very prominently in video at that defiant uh, speech that Rubiales made. You probably remember it in which he refused to resign. He was adamant he wasn't going to go. And de la Fuente was seen there applauding him. Um, since then, there has been increasing public pressure, not just for Rubiales to resign, but for others who applauded, in particular, de la Fuente to resign. So he was trying to have a press conference today, we just came out of it, in which he was going to, which he was announcing the men's lineup for qualifying games at the Euro Cup. But first, he was grilled by the press about this applause. And while he said he regrets it and he does not support Rubiales at this time, he also said he would not resign. Take a listen. I don't have to resign. I have to ask for forgiveness. I made a mistake, a human mistake. I've said it, it was inexcusable. But right now, if I could go back, I wouldn't do that. I'm sure of it. Now, in the meantime, we are waiting for a decision from the sports tribunal on Rubiales, whether or not they will actually go ahead with an invest formal investigation and suspend him. Keep in mind that after the initial complaint that was filed the night of that unwanted kiss uh, at the World Cup, an additional 15 complaints have been filed with allegations now ranging from everything from sexual assault to abuse of power. So it does seem that the pressure is only increasing, Julia. 
Is that tied specifically to Rubiales or, or just to the industry itself? Fatika, what are some of the women, the other women footballers associations saying about this situation now there? Well, these recent complaints are tied specifically to Rubiales, but people I've been speaking to say it really is a systemic issue, uh, particularly for women footballers. Uh, and what's interesting is that even though there's been a need for change for quite some time, it seems to be that once women footballers have entered the professional high ranks, suddenly it, they've become a catalyst for change as well. I had a chance to speak with the Liga, La Liga F president, Beatriz Alvarez, and she said that, you know, it's good to see this kind of change actually happening. So there could be a silver lining, particularly if it's on this issue that pushes somebody like Rubiales out. Take a listen to what she said. I believe it's divine justice that it is women's football that put this man outside the Federation as he has ignored it all his life. So, I mean, there's been a lot of people upset that this has overshadowed Spain's World Cup victory. But if there is a silver lining, it's that change could come from all this, Julia. Yes, we'll see. Ratika Schubert, great to have you. Thank you. OK, coming up here on First Move, summer is coming to a close, but the Hollywood strikes aren't. More from the fallout from nearly four months now of picketing. Next. Welcome back to First Move and an update once again on the extreme weather facing parts of Asia. A typhoon, as you saw earlier on the show, already sending strong winds and rain through Hong Kong and a second threatens Taiwan. CNN's meteorologist Alison Chinchar is tracking the progress of both of these storms. Alison, what can you tell us? Yeah, we've got a lot that's going on in the next 72 hours. Back-to-back -back systems here. We begin with the system farther to the west, Seola. The typhoon sustained winds, excuse me, of 220 kilometers per hour, gusting up to 270. That forward movement to the west-northwest at about 17 kilometers per hour. A lot of those really strong winds and very heavy rain bands are already barreling across portions of Hong Kong. You can see from the Hong Kong Observatory, the radar, so a lot of that yellows um, beginning to or push into the area indicating very heavy rainfall and that's going to come in waves. You're going to have wave after wave of these heavy rain bands and some thunderstorms coming in. This system will continue to move to the west and then about 36 to 48 hours from now begin to dip back down to the south and west. As it does so, it is expected to weaken some. But keep in mind, just because it weakens does not mean that the threat for the winds or the rain goes away. Those will both still be there. So still looking at some rain in the forecast as we go through the next 48 hours and that system moves to the west. Now, just behind Sayola, we have our secondary storm that we're keeping an eye on. This typhoon sustained winds of 140 kilometers per hour, moving practically due west at 19 kilometers per hour. This is expected to push across Taiwan in the next 36 to 48 hours. Keep in mind, however, just about 24 hours from now, you will already start to feel those winds begin to pick up, those outer bands beginning to increase not only in intensity, but frequency. So providing more and more rainfall before finally continuing west in to mainland China slightly as a weaker storm. Now again, both of these systems rain is going to be a huge concern with Sayola. We're looking at widespread amounts of around 50 to 100 millimeters, but there will be some spots, especially along the coastal regions, 150 even as much as 200 millimeters of rain. Our secondary system as it crosses over Taiwan, you're looking at widespread amounts of 200 millimeters. Some areas could exceed 250 millimeters just over the course of the next 
next 24 to 48 hours as both of these systems continue to push off to the west. So again, certainly something to keep an eye on, Julia, with not just the first system, but both of them as we head through the weekend. And we certainly will. Alison, thank you for that. Alison Chinchar there. Okay, we're going to stay in the region. North Koreans who've been stranded abroad for the past three years will at last be able to go home. Pyongyang has begun lifting the tight COVID restrictions that effectively sealed its borders, as Paula Hancock's reports. North Korea's athletes are back on the global stage. Its taekwondo team headlined at the opening ceremony of the World Championships in Kazakhstan this month, believed to be the first overseas sporting engagement since its borders reopened. Pyongyang confirmed its borders are reopening to allow citizens stranded outside the country for more than three and a half years to return, one week quarantine required on arrival. North Korean restrictions were among the harshest in the world. It is considered one of the last countries to reopen its borders. And even then, they're only opening a crack, with some international flights resuming with China and Russia. Tourism, though, is still a dream. Corio Tours, which specialises in taking Westerners into North Korea, says they've heard nothing beyond plans to repatriate its own citizens. Quarantine alone makes tourism impractical. So there's business people, diplomats, workers, uh, wait staff, uh, tree cutters, students, all kinds of people essentially marooned outside of their country with, in most cases, no way to contact family for three and a half years. Bart van Gunnuchten went on a tour of North Korea with his father one year before the borders closed. He created YouTube videos of his experience. You go uh, and everyone hopes maybe that they will see a bit more of the real North Korea, um, which won't happen. Like they show you the places that they want to show you and it's the best of the best. And all the loyal people live in Pyongyang, you know, the, the wealthy people among all the North Koreans. So, um, no, you're probably far from certain realities. He does see value in North Koreans seeing foreigners in their country, but acknowledges useful interactions with the people are rare. Western tour operators, already a niche market, are likely to be among the last to be invited back. The tourism market in North Korea over the few years prior to the shutdown exploded hugely uh, to the point where the North Koreans brought in a limit on Chinese visitors of 1,000 per day to Pyongyang. And that limit was routinely breached. One other group waiting to be allowed back in, diplomats. The vast majority of them left during the pandemic, unable to send supplies in or rotate staff out. And so far, only Russian and Chinese officials have been invited back to Pyongyang since the restrictions eased, showing Kim Jong-un's political priorities. Paula Hancock's CNN Seoul. Now, it's been nearly four months since Hollywood writers went on strike. Television schedules have been shaken up. Movies and shows bumped the window for a deal with the studios that saves the winter season of production and gets cameras rolling once again is also quickly closing. Oliver Darcy joins us now. Oliver, I've barely seen any suggestion that the sides here can reach some kind of an agreement, but you're the man in the know. What hopes for a resolution? There's little hope right now for resolution in Hollywood. I mean, it is a terrible situation. Uh, studios and I think some writers had hope by now, by the Labor Day weekend, uh, there would be some uh, potential resolution and agreement in sight. Uh, people are going back to school. The weather is cooling. And, and people do, to some extent, want to go back to work. The studios, for sure, want to get production rolling again. 
But there is no agreement in sight. I mean, the studios tried uh, earlier uh, this month, or, or last month, I should say, to um, get negotiations going again. They, they made another offer to the writers, but the writers feel that the uh, studio offers are still very insufficient. And so right now they're at a standstill. It's a waiting game to see who uh, makes the next move. Uh, the problem is that the window, as you said, for the winter season uh, is closing very fast. And so basically if a deal is not hammered out in the next several weeks, uh, the idea of being able to shoot and produce shows that would uh, premiere in January, that's going to be out the window. A studio executive just told me yesterday, it just simply evaporates. And that would mean that even if a deal then is hammered out, let's say in October or November, um, that, uh, that it, it, people wouldn't be getting back to work because there would be no January uh, season. And so this is a big problem uh, moving forward because uh, obviously the writers are, are not getting paid, but the people who rely on the hum of the Hollywood engine, uh, there's a huge economy built out, out uh, around this in Hollywood and California, they're also not uh, getting paid. They're also struggling to make ends meet. Uh, just a terrible situation for uh, the writers and everyone uh, that relies on this business, as well as the studios that want to get back to producing those movies and films we all love. Yeah, exactly. And all the viewers of uh, people that are desperately waiting for their latest series or TV show to come out as well. Let's hope it gets resolved. Um, Oliver Darcy, thank you for that. Okay, coming up here on First Move, a new co-pilot in the classroom. And nope, I'm not talking about an extra teacher. We're talking about harnessing the power of technologies like artificial intelligence. The CEO of edtech firm Cypher Learning joins when we return. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to First Move. Now, we spend a lot of time discussing artificial intelligence. If you're a regular viewer, you will know that. We talk about its applications and some of the critiques. Now, AI in education has been, let's call it controversial in certain quarters. Some schools see it as a teaching aid, while others are banning it completely. One firm that wants teachers to embrace AI as an ally is Cypher Learning. The company uses AI to create personalized learning experiences for schools, individuals, and staff in the workplace. Its latest product is called Copilot, which allows educators to design and curate courses, tests, and games for students. Cypher says Copilot can do all of this in under 10 minutes and for less than $10 per course. The public school system in Qatar and Northwestern University already use Cypher to create coursework. Graham Glass is the founder and CEO of Cypher Learning, and he joins us now. Graham, fantastic to have you on the show. I also should admit to our viewers, I've seen this happen firsthand, and we'll talk about that in a second. But yeah. you come at this space as both um, an educator, but also a data and, and computer Greek geek. Um, so just explain the vision of Cypher Learning, first and foremost. Well, the vision of Cypher Learning is to transform the way that people teach and learn. And uh, for a lot of educators, they spend huge amounts of time involved in a lot of the drudgery of building the actual educational content. So we felt like AI offered an opportunity to re relieve a lot of that drudgery 
And so as you mentioned, uh, the first version of our co-pilot does a pretty amazing job actually uh, of creating fantastic quality materials in just minutes. Okay, so you've taken me down the AI route, so we're going to have to go there. When you and I met <laughs> yeah. in person, um, we discussed a lot of the capabilities and the impact of, of education on AI. Um, and our regular viewers will remember a subject that we talked about on the show a couple of weeks ago, which was a reticulated giraffe, um, yes. one without <laughs> spots. And so, I, just to challenge you, I asked you to uh, provide me with a curriculum for learning everything I could about this um, reticulated giraffe, and you did it, and it took about what twelve minutes. Just talk yeah, us through that this. Yeah, that was. A, I have to say that was a somewhat whimsical choice of yours, Julia, but it was a great one. <laughs> I, I think what this illustrated, me. what this illustrated, <laughs> is that you can pick anything. It could mm. be particle physics. It could be, you know, how to deal with a difficult customer. It could be digital branding. Anything that you want, and click a couple of buttons, and ten minutes later, you've got a beautiful course on that subject. And as you showed. Reticulated giraffes um, was no problem at all. It produced uh, a plan, tests, an effective study guide. I mentioned it takes about 10 to 12 minutes. Do you have a sort of comparison of what that would have taken in the real world for a teacher to put together a plan like that? Let's assume it was a broader curriculum than that. But I mean, we're talking hours, aren't we? Weeks. Yeah, we, we actually did quite a lot of research when we were building Copilot. And um, generally speaking, it normally takes between four to 600 hours to create a high-quality, engaging course. So that's, that's all time taken away from the teachers where they could be spending uh, inspiring and motivating their students. So our feeling, if we can shrink that four to 600 hours down to 10 minutes, and obviously you're going to do some personalization, that gives so much time back to the teacher to do what I think really teachers should be doing, which is inspiring their students. Now, my regular viewers, hopefully, because we talk a lot about this, will be going, hang on a second, what about accuracy? Where's the data yeah. coming from? Who's training the data that this AI system is using? Um, and who goes over this to make sure it's, it's factually correct? Over yeah, to that's you. Yeah, that, that, that's a great <laughs> question. I think that, that, first of all, there's more than one AI involved. So when Copilot works, there's at least three AIs working hard for you behind the scenes, um, and that's soon going to become five or six AIs. But to answer your question about accuracy, AIs are trained on a massive amount of internet data. Um, so they essentially ingest you know, the vast percentage of human knowledge. They extract the essence, and that's what they build the courses from. And so the idea behind Copilot is that it doesn't replace the teachers. It does a huge amount of the, the, the burden of creating the course, but the teacher does still have the responsibility to review it for accuracy. That being said, though, one of the things that we'll shortly be releasing is something called AI Crosscheck, which takes the output from the first AI and then introduces it to, to two more AIs who then review the first AI for accuracy. So that will then additionally remove some burden from the teacher. Yeah, so it's just adding layers of protection. So if there is some kind exactly. of disagreement between the two AI systems, then it's flagged <laughs> automatically and they can check they can check it, it, that first. Exactly, and it will automatically flag that for the human reviewer. So the human is still in the loop, but the AI is kind of scrubbing the first set of data so that you know the burden on you, the teacher, gets greatly reduced. What's the cost of this? Like if you were talking to a school that could potentially use this, and we'll talk about scaling in a second, but what's the cost? Because yeah. I mentioned the $10, but it sort of sounds a bit jarring to me. Yeah, well, funnily enough, the average price is actually more like $5. So the $10 is actually probably twice what you'd normally pay. 
So yeah, you're, you're taking what typically costs between eleven to $15,000 and reducing that down to about $5. I'm sort of stunned into silence. I can understand why um, sort of a whole nation like Qatar is saying to you, okay, we can use this in some way to sort of redevelop what is a traditionally archaic education system, I think, in many places where you look around the world. How do you even go about doing that on a much larger scale? Well, I think, you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm on the show. I'm trying to get the, the good news out to the uh, education community that AI really does have the potential to transform the way that people teach and learn, and it will it re relieve a lot of the drudgery that's typically involved. So part of it is evangelism. Um, a lot of it is showing people what great looks like. You know, that's why I, I was really happy that you showed, here's what a course looks like after it's built, because when people experience the AI, their jaw normally drops and they're like, wow, I had no idea that AI was <laughs> capable about that. And, and believe me, this is scratching the surface of what AI is going to do. But do you, do you also have some teaching response, which is, oh, my goodness, this is going to sort of do me out of a job. And as you well know, part of the other response to this has been, hang on a second, it's going to be used as a tool for cheating for students. Um, how do you get around those two issues? Because you're right in the heart of it. Yeah, well, you know, in my background, I used to teach computer science at the University of Texas at Dallas. So I know exactly what it's like to be a teacher or a professor. And personally, I would have embraced this if it had been available when I was teaching. So I would have taken the course that I spent hundreds of hours building. I would have built an initial version in about 10 minutes. I would have personalized it. So when I walk into the classroom, I have so much more time left over to motivate and inspire my students. So I don't view this as a threat in the slightest of the teaching community. I look at it more like using AI gives them back so much time to do what hopefully they, they love doing. Yeah, although there will be people watching this going, hang on a second, you are the CEO of this company, so that we would expect you to say that. Um, <laughs> you know, I have greater yeah. faith, I have to admit, in the private sector quite often rather than the government sector for big transformations like our education system, which I think many of us agree needs to be done. How do you scale this? I feel like you almost need a conversation with hardware, uh, Apple, Dell, for example, um, and, and finding out how we sort of in, introduce this and use this on a far wider scale in schools and the workplace beyond. Graham, here's your moment. If yeah. uh, the CEOs of those um, <laughs> companies are listening, Thank what would you, you say Julie. to them? You, there you go. You yes. teed that up awesomely for me. <laughs> so, yeah, we have very big visions about how AI can really improve the way that uh, students learn, the way that teachers teach. And we are working on some amazing technology that goes way beyond what you showed in your show today. So we would love to team up with people like Richard Branson, Michael Dell, Carlos Slim, um, Steve Jobs Foundation, anyone who's listening there, uh, we would love to team up with you to bring this technology to hundreds of millions of kids. Yeah, I um, that's what it needs. Graham, it's just the beginning of our conversation. We'll work on that. And if those guys were listening, um, we'll pass on your details. Graham yes. Thank you so Bye. much, Julia. Thank you. We'll talk again. Founder and CEO of Cypher Learning. Thank you. Bye. Okay, coming up after the break, the end of the line in Paris. Whether you think they're two-wheeled terrors or eco-friendly runabouts, tourists wanting to rent e-scooters will receive a simple no from today. That's next. 
Welcome back to First Move. Wall Street up and running for the final time this week and the first trading day of September, the last session before a long holiday weekend in the United States and a higher, we'll call it that, open for stocks this morning. A bit of weakness, though, as you can see there, for technology. All this after the release of another solid U.S. jobs report. A Fed-friendly, let's call it that, I think, as well. The U.S. adding a stronger-than-expected 187,000 jobs in August. That said, it was the third month of job gains below the 200,000 level, with sizable downward revisions for June and July, too. The unemployment rate ticking higher to 3.8% as well. The jobless rate now at its highest level in 18 months. But remember, the bar is really low. We also saw wage growth slowing slightly too. All this data could allow the Fed to keep interest rates steady at its interest rate meeting later this month. And a nice start to September trading, but a rough August overall for the bulls. The blue chips taking the biggest hit down two and a half percent. Monthly returns would have looked even worse without this week's gains. And of course, Context is everything, as we often say on this show. Tech still up more than 34% year to date. Now, the streets of Paris are a little less cluttered today after a ban on rented electric scooters went into effect earlier this morning. In a public ballot back in April, the move was backed by almost 90% of Parisians who voted, although voter turnout was tiny. Jim Bitterman's hopped on the story for... Oh, Jim! Where's the scooter? How are you going to cope with, <laughs> without how these? Cope? I, cope? I got to tell you, Julie, I come at this with some bias because I love to walk. I guess that's my problem. <laughs> uh, and these scooters are just everywhere, uh, have been anywhere, everywhere for the last five years. Paris was one of the early adopters of the scooters. They basically allowed 12 companies to come in and bring in thousands of scooters. Uh, and then over the years, uh, because of the various problems that they have presented, uh, for example, accidents, there have been a number of accidents last year, for example, more than 400 accidents, more people were injured in accidents, and there were actually three people killed uh, by these scooters. Uh, there's also the problem of where people drop them off. Sometimes they'll put them in front of the you know, apartment buildings and whatnot. Sometimes they throw them into the Seine. Uh, all of it was kind of uh, not so much a problem of the scooters, but a problem of the users of the scooters who tended to be kind of young people and tourists and people who didn't understand the rules. So now after many years and changing the regulations several times, uh, Ferris is finally getting around to banning them entirely and getting rid of the private rental scooters. Yeah, Jim, that's such a good point. Don't blame the technology, blame the users who quite frankly chose not (laughs) in many cases to follow the rules. Um, Where are all these um, scooters now headed? Coming soon to a city well, they, near you, somewhere else in Europe. Could, could be, could be, because they're privately owned. These companies are going to make moves, and we already have heard several making moves to sell the scooters, or at least sell the principal of the scooters in other in other countries around uh, Europe and perhaps around the world. But they basically have got thousands of scooters that they've taken off the streets, and the companies say they're still in pretty good shape. So why not use them? So I think it, you'll probably see them. Uh, coming to some cities in Europe and maybe elsewhere as uh, the companies themselves go try to try to merchandise their service. I should say, Julia, one of the problems here has been the fact the way the, the costing of this has been done. Basically, you rent the scooters very cheap. It's a euro to rent it and then 25 euro cents per minute that you're using it. Well, that encourages people to be very fast, to run through red lights and to perhaps dump the bike, dump the scooter wherever they can. 
Sorry? I know. They're always going in the wrong direction. That's my biggest issue sure. with them. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Jim, from your beautiful room. I love that room. It looks fantastic. Jim Bitter in there, so thank you. And that's it for the show. Connect the Worlds up next. Have a wonderful weekend. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.